We're in Joshua chapter 8 in your Bibles, if you have a Bible, and we'll be reading some from Deuteronomy. There are several lengthy passages that are not on the PowerPoint so that you can follow them easily in the Scripture. Let me uh, make a plug for Wednesday night. We're talking about the Bible and studying the Bible. It's a little book why you can have confidence in the Bible. There's some very interesting things there. We would encourage you to join us on Wednesday evening for that time of study of the Scripture and how to get the most out of your Bible study. Our lesson is entitled today, Reclaiming Lost Ground. Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us a record in Scripture of the lives of men and women, how they obeyed You, sometimes disobeyed You, and we pray that we might profit from the study of their experiences. Help us to see ourselves in the decisions and actions that they take. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Some of you remember John Wooden, who was a legendary basketball coach of the UCLA Bruins. And while he was coaching, that team won 10 national championships in basketball in just 12 years. Well, he left us with some quotes with regard to success and failure. And here is one of them. Success is never final. Failure is never fatal. It's courage that counts. Last week we saw the nation of Israel under Joshua's leadership, and they had just won what has come to be known as the Battle of Jericho. Actually, it wasn't a battle at all. God knocked the walls down, enabled them to go in and uh, capture the place and destroy Jericho. And the people obeyed God and did what He told them to do. So, from the flush of victory... Then we saw 3,000 men went up the mountain pass to the little city of Ai and were soundly defeated because there was sin in the camp. Then we observed Joshua's prayer. We saw God's reply to his prayer. And we saw Achan's punishment. And as the sin was dealt with and God's judgment came upon the entire nation, because one man had sinned. And that's where we got our title for our lesson last week, All for One and One for All. That was bad news for Israel, but there is some good news for us. We are the all. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Christ is the one. All of our sin was laid upon Him and because of His righteous obedience to the law, we may all be redeemed from the curse of the law. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many were made righteous. The many would refer to everyone who would see the need to come to Christ in repentance and faith, and ask for Him to recondition their lives. The Bible refers to those as God's elect. 
We'll change Wooden's quote a little bit to say, failure is never fatal unless it's final and you just give up. So we've seen Israel getting back on track in our lesson for today. And you can imagine the discouragement of those people when they were defeated and 36 fatalities occurred in, from this battle with this little bitty city that came rushing out to meet them in the conflict and killed some of the men. That must have been a very discouraging thing after the flush of victory at Jericho. Could there be an important principle here? God has ways of getting our attention. Does God have your full attention this morning? If not, He can certainly get the attention. How would He get it? Here's a surefire way. The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. He says again in chapter seven and chapter one nineteen seventy one, it's good for me that I've been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. And then Jeremiah kind of summarizes what had been going on in the nation of Israel. And he says, God speaking, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your practice from your youth that you have not obeyed my voice. Now there is a simple principle. If we don't listen to God in our prosperity, then He may swap the prosperity for some adversity. And usually when adversity comes along, we have a tendency to say, Hey God, what's going on here? I'm down here serving you and here's all this adversity. Now we're not suggesting that you're not paying attention just because you have adversity. But that would be a good place to begin. Am I really paying attention to the Lord. Well, someone would say, is that the mean Old Testament God just going around chastening everybody all the time? Well, God knows that uh, chastening may be good for us, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. And if he needs to get our attention, he can certainly use that. Here's a good New Testament verse, Hebrews 12:11. No chastening, or we might say discipline, seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When you go to the doctor and he says, I have to perform surgery, it may be a little bit painful, but it's going to have a good result in the end if all goes well. So don't get discouraged if you're experiencing some chastening. You might be paying attention. Job was paying attention. But if adversity does come, the first place to look is in my own heart to see, am I really listening to the Lord? Have I missed something here with regard to His instructions? Have I failed to ask Him what we need to do next? You remember last week there was the prayerlessness where they failed to ask God. There seemed to be presumption that we can take this little bitty town, no problem, and then there was the passion that resulted in disobedience on Achan's part. Some people might have had the passion of covetousness as they saw all those uh, goods there that they could have had that were destroyed. But we did point out last week if Achan had just waited a few days, he would have gotten in on the plunder when God says this time they may take the loot there from 
the little city of Ai. Now here is Helen Redpath, and he's talking about uh, reclaiming lost ground. And here's what he has to say. If you were to sit down alone with your Bible and reflect on that record, I believe you would find yourself indefinitely impressed with the fact that the recovery of lost ground in Christian experience is the most difficult problem of all. Thirty minutes of willful disobedience in the life of a child of God has often resulted in thirty years of being out of blessing. Many a man has grown into middle life with no vision for a perishing world, no burden for a lost soul, no real heart in the work he does for God. If he were to ask himself why, he could look back into his youth to a time when, for a few moments, he had turned away from God's best. When he had been led into an unholy practice because of that, lost his grip and his power, the Holy Spirit was grieved, and now the man is a useless instrument for God. Still preaching, still teaching, still leading, but out of blessing. May the Holy Spirit write it with power on your hearts. Lost ground in Christian living is very difficult to recover. Now the good news, as we will see, is that it can be recovered. And the way it will be recovered is when we turn from error to truth and begin to apply that truth in our lives. Now we come to the stratagem for the battle for the recovering the lost ground at Ai here. God always has a good strategy, and sometimes He has a stratagem, which would be some kind of trick or subterfuge. In this case, we're going to fool the man of Ai into following a false conclusion. You may remember that uh, Rahab accomplished the same thing. These are times of war. So we're using principles of warfare uh, to fool the enemy. So in this case, God spoke to Joshua. We have to get the strategy right out of the Scripture. And sometimes we have to dig, and sometimes we have to really pray. But God spoke to Joshua, and here's what He said. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you, and arise and go up to Ai. And see, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king, just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and cattle as plunder for yourselves. That part was different from Jericho. Set an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and sent them out at night. Now you see that we're going to trick the men of Ai. And so Joshua sends the men out by night. And this was probably the main force of the ambush that goes around behind the city. And then in verse 12 we see, And he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. Perhaps he didn't want troops from Bethel coming over to help out their buddies there at Ai. So they stationed the people, all the army that was on the north side of the city, and its rear guard that was on the west side of the city, and Joshua spent the night in the midst of the valley. So he stations another 5,000 men, perhaps 5,000 out of that 30,000, and he's got all the bases covered 
and God has told him what to do, what the strategy is going to be. Now, if you'll open your Bibles, or if you have them open to Joshua 8, look in verse 18. I'm going to read there about what happens next with regard to the battle. Verse 18, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that is in his hand toward the city, and the men in ambush rose quickly from their place. And when he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. They quickly set the city on fire. I think that was probably a signal fire to let the men outside who were retreating know that they could turn around then and come back that the city had been captured because they're going to take the plunder of the city, so I don't think they wanted to burn it all up. Verse 20, When the men of Ai turned around and looked, behold, the smoke of the city ascended to the sky, and they had no place to flee this way or that, for the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness turned against the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and slew the men of Ai, and the others came out from the city to encounter them so that they were trapped in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And they slew them until no one was left of those who survived or escaped. Now we talked about last week the fact of the harem, the fact that uh, these people are going to be wiped out completely and their wicked practices are going to be eliminated all in one fell swoop. God's judgment against them. So some of the Israelites attacked Ai as before, and then they turned around to flee before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai thought, hey, we've got them just like we did last time, and they're chasing them out of the city. The others in ambush come into the city, set up the signal fire, and then the ones who are in retreat turn around, and they've caught them in the pincher act there. Pretty good strategy coming from the Lord. Joshua 8:28. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. Interestingly, the name Ai means heap of ruins. And this site was so thoroughly destroyed that archaeologists can't tell where it is today. But archaeologists know where Joshua's altar is that he built on Mount Ebal. That was discovered in 1980 by Dr. Adam Zertel, a Jewish archaeologist. And you can see a picture of what's left of Joshua's altar uh, right there on the internet. Now, what do you think the Israelites will do after the destruction of Ai? What do you think is coming next? They now have control of the north section of the hill country mountain highway that goes across the top of the mountains. After traveling down that road about 20 miles, they looked on their left and they saw two mountains, two twin hills. And they took the road between those mountains. That would lead them into the Valley of Shechem. And the Valley of Shechem was one of the most beautiful places in all of Palestine. How did they get there? Were they just cruising down the road looking for a pretty place to camp? Well, no. There's a lot more to it than that. They were following some detailed instructions that had been given years before. 
the instructions were written in the book. Sometimes we don't think about those people having a Bible back then, but they had some portion of the Bible, the portion that Moses had written during his lifetime. Now, in the Valley of Shechem, we've seen some things happen before. 800 years previous to this time, Abraham was in that valley when he came into the land of Canaan. And it was there that God first gave him the promise that there would be a land for his people, that he was giving to Abraham and his descendants this land there, this beautiful land. And then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, dug a well there that is still identifiable today. And then 1,500 years after that, Jacob's weary descendant, Jesus of Nazareth, sat down at the well to talk to a Samaritan woman. And you remember the Samaritan woman said, we worship God here at Mount Gerizim. But Jesus had to explain to her that you need some living water and you need to learn how to worship God in spirit and in truth. So this is a well-known site in Scripture. But what's going to happen here in today's lesson is little known. You probably never heard a sermon or a study on what's going to take place. But it's very, very interesting. Now this valley is between these two hills. Mount Gerizim is 2,800 feet tall. And Mount Ebal is about 200 feet taller than that. The mountains are about a mile and a half apart at the summit. And then down at the base, it's only a distance of about 500 yards. From either mountain, much of the promised land can be seen. They would be right located centrally in the middle of the land. And you could see a lot of the promised land from either of these hills. Mount Ebal is a barren rock. But Mount Garrison has lush vegetation. It's amazing they would be so different right there in the same location. At one place, the mountains form a natural amphitheater. And if you're on the mountain or down below in the valley, you can hear anything that's said on the other mountain if it's spoken in a loud voice. How did they find out about that place? Well, let's take a look. Israel had come to their homeland. This was the place that God had given them. And you know the amazing thing? They're still there today. And sometimes those Israeli pilots are sitting in the cockpit out on the tarmac ready to be scrambled so that they can keep that homeland. But God has kept them in the land from that time forth even until today. Now you would think that Joshua, when they got there, that beautiful place, would have proclaimed a great celebration with feasting and dancing and celebrating that they finally have come home to the land that God promised Abraham. But no, not this time. They've just had the experience, fresh in their memories, of Jericho and Ai. And so they're not going to celebrate. Instead, they're going to sacrifice to the Lord their God. Joshua 8, 30 and 31. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. Now that's important. That's where the altar was built, in Mount Ebal. 
just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, and peace offerings. How did Moses know to command them to build, thank you, to build an altar on Mount Ebal? How would he have known that? He had never been into the promised land. You remember he got angry one time too many and didn't get to go into the promised land. How would he have known unless God had revealed that to him? Now, these are going to be stones that are not tooled because there is to be no work of man on this altar. God wants them to realize this is His altar. God knew that man would sin and He knew that man would lose ground, but He knew that He had to provide a way for man to get back on track and regain the ground. And that way would be through that altar and the sacrifice that would be offered on the altar. Now the blood of bulls and goats can't accomplish anything, but it was a picture of the coming sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God. So we have all of these illustrations in the Old Testament every time there is a sacrifice of what's going to come way later on. So they offered the sacrifice there that day. Then they have a solemn assembly. Joshua 8, verse 32. And he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. I think that was probably just the Ten Commandments. I don't think he wrote the whole thing on the stones. Which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. And all Israel and their elders and officers and judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward, he read all the words of the law. He read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that was written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with, with women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. We saw the same thing in the study of Nehemiah. A lot of times these people got together and it took a while to read all the words of the law. But they were interested in that. Now we've seen the strategy. We've seen the sacrifice. Here's the solemn assembly. And in the next two sections, these sections, the sacrifice and the solemn assembly, we see the formula for confronting the flush of victory and the need for reclaiming lost ground. Reality therapy is necessary. Because let me tell you when the enemy likes to attack. He loves to attack at a time of prosperity and victory. And when everything is going well. And I'm kind of lulled into insensibility thinking, hey, this is cool. We're just cruising right along here. That's when the enemy knows that my guard may be down. He's counting on the fact that you'll be celebrating. And your guard may be down. How do you think it worked out on this occasion 
that the people turned to the Lord for sacrifice and for reviewing the law instead of having a wild celebration. This would have looked to me like a great time just to have a great big party and have some good food and rejoice that God had fulfilled His promise. Now, turn in your Bible over to Deuteronomy 11, if you will. Deuteronomy 11 and verse 26. Here's Moses. See if you think this applies to us today, right now. Chapter 11, verse 26. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known. Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Abel. Are they not on the other side of the Jordan toward the setting sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal beside the terebinth trees of, of Moreh? In Genesis 35, Jacob buried all the idols from his family beside the oaks of Moreh when he got back to the land after he had picked up uh, Rachel and Leah. Isn't this amazing that God has told Moses years before what to write down for them to do when they get into the promised land? So they're just following instructions here. Now skip to Deuteronomy 27 and verse 1. Deuteronomy 27. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. It shall be on the day when you shall cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones, and coat them with lime, and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, in order that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. And so it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. Now go to verse 11. Moses also charged the people that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, the tribes of Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And for the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal. And then he names Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali. And the Levites shall answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man who maketh any graven image. In verse 15, all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Wouldn't that have been something to hear a million Adult people shouting, Amen. Maybe that's where we get Amen from. So uh, shall it be. Uh, may it be. So this is the instruction that's given. We have the priest. We have Joshua. 
we have the ark in the middle of the valley here. And over on one side, we have the altar at Mount Ebal, and that's the Mount of Cursing. And then over on the other side, we have these other tribes with Mount Gerizim, and they're shouting with a loud voice, and the people can hear everything that's being said. And if we had time, we could go through there and see all the things you'll be blessed for and all the things you'll be cursed for if you do not obey. How did Moses know were to take them to a natural amphitheater where they could hear somebody speaking a quarter mile away. And that many people would have room to gather around. When you read the details of the Old Testament, it's obvious that God is at work here. I don't think anybody could have made all this up if they had tried. So here's what's happening and here's what it means. In the midst of some unconditional promises such as I will never leave you or forsake you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. That's an unconditional promise. But sprinkled in there would be some conditional promises. Do these things and I will bless you. Do these other things and there will be some curses that you would receive. Now, we're not talking about salvation now by any means. We're talking about Christian living. We're talking about reaping what you sow. We have established already that salvation is by grace through faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. It was his faith that was the means by which uh, God was crediting this righteousness to him based on the fact that he trusted God that one day there's going to be this Messiah that comes, this seed that's going to bruise the serpent's head. Sins would be forgiven on the basis of the sacrifices on the altar that pointed to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Only Christ could accomplish what the blood of animals could never accomplish. But it was a picture. God, in essence, was saying these commandments are a representation of my character. If you obey them, life will be much better and you will be blessed. Do you know what I've seen in my lifetime? I've seen some non-Christians who obeyed some of God's laws better than some Christians and received a temporal blessing from it. It's not going to help them much in eternity. Christ took those same commandments and elevated them to a higher level instead of just don't murder, don't hate, Instead of just don't commit adultery, don't have lust. Instead of don't, just don't steal, don't covet. And you get covet in the Old Testament and the New Testament because that's the thing that seems to precede every sin would be some form of covetousness. So your motive for obedience to these conditional commandments should be what? Like the candy machine? I'm going to put in my quarter and I'm going to get out my blessing. So I've got to be sure I read my Bible this morning. No, it should be love for God. And even that is a commandment, isn't it? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God and Him only shalt thou serve. So we do it out of a heart of love for Him. And if we don't have the right motive, James says you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it 
on your pleasures. So where does legalism come in? We tell people they ought to obey the law if they want to get the blessing, temporal blessing. Well, if I take my convictions and my standards toward my obedience to what God has commanded, the commands of Christ, and I say, you've got to do what I do, then that might be legalism. Or if I count my righteousness, or my doing of good works or whatever, if I count that as making me righteous before God, that would be legalism. If I think, like the Pharisees, that somehow I am righteous and I'm doing all these good works and God is happy with me, that would be legalism. That you can keep the outward trappings of the law, but in your heart you can be a hypocrite. That was the problem of the Pharisees. Now, we know we can't keep it perfectly, so we have an altar. And the altar is on the Mount of Cursing, Mount Ebal. Why is the altar on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing, instead of on Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing? See, the Samaritans thought Gerizim is the one. That's where they built their altar, and that's what the Samaritan woman was talking about. But God wanted people to be reminded that the curse, the curses, are what comes from sin. I'm not talking right now about the curse of hell. We've said we're set free from that. But I'm talking about the temporal blessings or judgments, or curses that come right here in this life. The curses are on Mount Ebal because that's what happens if you don't obey God. When you sin, sin bears consequences. And it may not be some huge curse that destroys everything like it did for Achan, but it may be just frustration that things aren't going right and things aren't the way they ought to be and things aren't working out the way I intended. Well, perhaps I, re uh, perhaps I lost some ground at some point that has not been reclaimed. Very difficult to reclaim that ground. But it can be done. So the altar is on Mount Ebal because that's going to be the remedy for when I get off track. I can come back to my relationship with God through the altar, through the sacrifice that was on the altar, through the perfect sacrifice of Christ that was on the altar in that sense. Have you noticed in our church that we don't have an altar down front? In some churches, Protestant churches, you would see a table, the Lord's table, where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We don't have an altar because we're done with altars. Christ offered the final sacrifice. And he said, it's finished. And we can praise the Lord that we don't have to continue doing the sacrifice. Now here's the verse that ties that together, that ties the altar to Mount Ebal. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, hold on right there just a minute. I think that means He redeemed us from the curse of breaking the law. Because the law is not a curse. Paul said the law is good. All have sinned against God's law and the wages of sin is death. And that's the curse. And Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, not from obedience to the law. Now, we don't obey the law perfectly. And I'm just thinking about Ten Commandments. 
And what Christ said about that, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We don't do that perfectly, but then we can come back to Christ who did do it perfectly. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. When we get off track, what do we do? Well, we might think about the consequences of getting off track. There are some dire consequences sometimes, especially if I stay off track. But I can come back to the altar. I can come back to the cross where Christ is crucified. And that's going to be the way that I get back on track. Obedience to Christ's commandments not only demonstrates our love for Christ, but it shows that we care about having the character of Christ because Christ's commandments represent His character. It represents who He is, the person that He is, and we want to be like Him, conform to His image. So here's the misrepresentation of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. It was the Pharisees. They thought they could keep the law and all the man-made traditions and be acceptable to God because of their obedience and good works. Christ said, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. So what can we say, just uh, wrapping it up here, that we have learned from the battles of Jericho and Ai. Lost ground in Christian living is very difficult to regain and can result in devastating consequences if I don't do what's necessary to reclaim the ground. And sometimes I just have to set things aside and go to work on reclaiming the lost territory. If a person will not hear God's voice, God may use adversity to get his or her attention. How do we hear God's voice? Through the Scripture. He may speak to you in an audible voice. That's not usually the case. Not all adversity is a result of failure to hear God's voice. Sin has to be exposed and judged if blessings are to continue. The conditional blessings, I'm not talking about your personal sin in your heart. I'm talking about what Achan did. And what he did... In doing that, he represented the entire nation. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. That would be a conditional blessing. If you're not seeking first God's kingdom, don't count on all the things. Failure is never fatal unless it's final and you give up and quit. The blessings in the lives of God's children are dependent on our obedience to Him. Our salvation is not dependent on our obedience to Him. It was Christ's obedience to Him that gained our salvation. But if we do not obey, albeit imperfectly, if we don't care anything about obeying, it might mean that we're on the goat team with the Pharisees instead of on the sheep team of those who love God and want to obey Him. I'm talking about as a trend of life. We may all fall into some backsliding or losing some ground along the way. In the middle of His unconditional promises, God inserts conditional promises which result in 
blessing or judgment. Can you think of one? How about delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. You've got to be delighting in the Lord. The people of God must choose whether or not they're going to obey Him. Obedience does matter. Sometimes some people act as if obedience doesn't matter at all. It does matter. It is of vital importance how a Christian lives. It's of importance to himself. It's of importance to others. It's of importance to God. Just a verse here, 1 John 1, 9. If, sounds conditional, if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Is that a good marriage family verse or what? If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we're not walking in the light, the fur may be flying. And number 10, the Christian life is characterized by a progression of new beginnings, a series of fresh starts. And that's the thought I want to leave you with. Although lost ground is difficult to regain, you can regain it and it will be worth the battle. And then after that comes the blessing that God wants to give to those who are obedient to Him, to those who are victorious. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that uh, at every point along the way, from the time of Adam and Eve, You have made a way for us to be back in right relationship with You. And you have chosen to picture that through the sacrifice of animals, of their shed blood, that would show us that a Savior is coming who would shed His blood. Thank you, Lord, that you enable us to put aside our waywardness and backsliding and come back into the right relationship with you. And I would pray if there's anyone here this morning who might be on the downhill slant of relationship with you, that this would be the time to turn things around, to come back to the cross and bow before you and ask for your forgiveness and ask for your help in reclaiming lost territory. Thank you, Lord, that failure is not fatal unless we just give up and quit and we know that you never give up on us. Thank you for the record of these people in Scripture who have obeyed you, although imperfectly, and who have reaped the blessings. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.